you've had a chance to, to say hello to me because I want to get a chance to meet you, and I hadn't gotten a chance to do that with a lot of you yet. So it's good to see everybody, though, this morning. Man, the, the ground that we're going to be covering this morning, you, you came on a, on a day where it's some, some weighty stuff. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's some weighty stuff, man, even as I just prepared this week as to, to what we were going to cover, it was just, ooh, it was just, it was just heavier than it normally was, and, and, and I think that the reason that it was is because I'm continuing to realize just how pervasive the primary issue that we're going to be covering this morning actually is. But what I think is going to happen this morning is what we're going to talk about, though, though it's needful to talk about, I think that it may, it may miss some of you, and I secretly hope that it does, not secretly, I, I really hope that it does, but for others of us, the ground that we're going to cover, I think it's going to hit us right between the eyes, even though I'm aiming for the heart. But before we but before we begin, let let let's let's pray and let's come to the Lord. Father, we we we're just I'm asking for your help this morning, God. I, some weighty stuff that we're going to be covering, and, and but some very important things that that we're going to be covering that that is vital that we apply to our lives. God, everything that is said this morning, I, I pray it would be received in the spirit from which it's coming which is in the spirit of love and i pray god that you would convict and uh, i pray god that you would encourage that you would challenge and that people would walk out of here today different than they came in in your name we pray amen so we've been we've been studying the verse the book of First Thessalonians together, and what we've been doing is going verse by verse through the book of First Thessalonians. And so we've been studying this book actually for this is the 16th week. And in one of the the overarching ideas that we've covered as we've been studying this book is that this book is written to believers that are in the last of the last days to prepare them for the coming of the Lord. It's pretty incredible. At the end of nearly every chapter of this book, what we see is, is that there's a reference to the coming of the Lord, to the Lord's return. And we would, we would believe that we are actually living right now in the last of the last days. And and so I believe that this book has a special application to those of us that are alive right now. And, and, and what we're going to be seeing today and in the coming weeks from chapter 4 is, is how, to, how we're to conduct ourselves in the body of Christ as believers in Christ with our bodies and with our brothers. And, and God lays this out for us, how we're to conduct ourselves with our bodies and with our brothers, and he's saying, these are areas that my people should be different. And, and so, like I mentioned, th this, this book is in our Bibles to teach us about how to conduct ourselves in the last of the last days prior to the coming of the Lord. And if there are two areas that we're getting further and further from God's purposes for us, I think it's these two. It's the way we behave with our bodies, and it's the way we behave with our brothers or towards our brothers. But, but, but today it is going to be focused on the way we behave with, with our bodies and the way we conduct ourselves with our bodies. We'll talk more about our brothers over the next week or two. Now, last week we, we finished verse 2 of chapter 4, and, and what we saw last week is that as chapter 4 begins... What's actually happening is, is the context from chapter 3, where chapter 3 ends, is actually continuing over into the next chapter. I want to remind you of what I mean. I don't want to just tell you, I want you to see it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 12, it says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men, 
even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And then the next chapter starts, and it begins with, in chapter 4 in verse 1, furthermore then, or in other words, continuing on with this same idea then, and that idea, of course, is continuing on by laying out how our lives are to look so that at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be found blameless and we can be found holy before God. And this part is what we studied last week. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more, for ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where we finished last week, and verse 3 is where we'll begin this morning. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. And so chapter 4 begins with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Those are the author's of the book. They're reminding the Thessalonians about the commandments that they had received from them in regards to walking the way that they ought to walk or walking in a manner in which their lives can be found blameless and holy when the Lord comes back. And as you can see, what's happening as we begin verse 3 is, is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are actually beginning to teach us what that looks like in the way that we conduct ourselves with our bodies. And, and we see, number one, in your, on your study sheet, we see what we're to abstain from. What we're to abstain from. Look, at, it says it at the end of verse 3. I think we have a slide for that. It says to abstain from fornication. So the will, of our, the will of God for our lives is that we will live sanctified lives. Be, being, being sanctified connects back to what this passage of Scripture is actually all about. If you're living a sanctified life, what you're doing is, is you're living a life that is blameless and holy. And more specifically, if you're living a sanctified life, it means that you're set apart. That's what sanctified actually means by definition. It means set apart. And I think sometimes we get confused with that because what it, what's actually happening is, is that we're to be set apart from something, but we're also to be set apart to something. It, it, it's clear in this verse what God wants us to be set apart from which, which we'll, we'll look at in a minute, but, but the reason that we, he wants us to be set apart from this is because he wants us to be set apart to him. The first time the word sanctified comes up in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. And in this verse, God has just finished the creation week. And here's what it says. And God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it. There's that word. Because that in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. Now, let me ask you something. How do you sanctify a day? Right? He, he sanctifies it because he set it apart from the other days and unto him. That day is something special. It's a, it's a day of rest, the verse says. And what we actually find out as we study the Bible is that 2 Peter chapter 3 in verse 8 teaches us to not be ignorant of this one thing. In other words, there's a lot that you can be ignorant of in your life, and you might get away with it, and it might not come back to bite you. But don't let it be this. And here it is. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So he gives us a mathematical formula. 
That's what we shouldn't be ignorant of. And, and, and so when you plug that formula into this equation and we compare Scripture with Scripture, what we understand is, is that day of rest is, that is sanctified to the Lord is actually pointing to the millennial reign of Christ where there will be a thousand-year day of rest as Jesus physically rules and reigns on this earth after the second coming. You see, that day is set apart from something and set apart to something. In this case, it's actually to someone. That thousand-year day is sanctified to God, and it's a time where there will finally be rest. It's a time where Jesus Christ finally gets the glory that is due his name and you see our lives are sanctified to god for the same purpose our lives are to be sanctified and set apart unto god so that he gets the glory he deserves from our lives right now and so paul silas and timothy are saying to the church of the thessalonians and 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 god is trying to say to our church this morning In order to be sanctified, holy, and pure, there are things you need to be set apart from. And one of those things you need to be completely set apart from is fornication. Letter A, it's fornication. Now, again, verse 3 says we're to be abstained from fornication. Now listen, this is a word that we use a lot in church culture, but I'm not so sure we use it that much. In secular culture, so I know there are people here that aren't totally tracking with what that word means. And so understand, fornication, it's a it's a all-encompassing word. And 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 what it means is is it means any kind of sexual sin. All kinds of sexual sin inside of marriage and outside of marriage. So it would certainly include adultery, but it would not be limited. To adultery. Fornication, please listen, singles and high schoolers. Fornication includes premarital sex, but not just limited to intercourse. And for fear of sounding crass, it includes all of those things leading up to intercourse that I don't think I have to describe in detail to you for you to understand what I mean. It's, it's, the, it's the touching, it's all of those things. And, and God is teaching us that if we're going to be holy and blameless before the Lord at his return, then we've got to be sanctified and set apart unto him. And the only way to do that is to abstain from fornication. And to be honest with you, I'm not so sure there is a topic I could talk about this morning that is more relevant to our society than this one. And and I think if you've got your finger on the pulse of the state of Christianity and the state of the world, I think you know that too. But if not, let me hit you with some sad statistics. It's, It's been a few years now, but there was a national survey that found out that 80% of young unmarried Christians have had sex. Two-thirds had been active in the last year. Now, I understand that stats can be flawed and people that conduct the surveys can kind of have their own agendas, but my guess from having my finger at least near the pulse of what's going on is that they're actually probably pretty close. So if that stat is close to being true, Do you realize how close Christians are to the rest of the world in that category? Even if 100% of young unmarried people in the unbelieving world had also had sex, the Christians are still just neck and neck with them right behind at 80%. God says to his people, I want you to be set apart unto me. I want you to be something different than the rest of of the world and one of the key ways i want you to do that is in the way you conduct yourself with your body that's something that should be completely different about a believer than it is about an than it is for an unbeliever that's how the world will see the difference in somebody that's sanctified and set apart 
unto myself. They'll be holy. They'll be pure. And here we are neck and neck with the sexual behavior of the lost world. How incredibly sad is that? And you say, wow, well, I, I actually kind of feel good about myself because I'm young and single and I'm not fornicating. Or you're married and you say, I feel good about myself too because, you know, I, that's only between me and my spouse. Well, that's great. And I pray that that's true. But I do want to make sure there's something else that everyone considers this morning. Do you realize that we get the English word for fornication from the same word that we get the word pornography? Fornication, pornography. It's, it's from the same, it comes from the same word. So don't think that you're off the hook because your sexual sins don't involve another person directly. It involves others, but they're on the screen and, instead of in person. And man, this isn't fun to talk about. <laughs> but in the day and age we're living in, it needs to be addressed. And I feel a burden and a need to do it. Because we live in a period of time that though sexual sin and lust has always been a problem, all throughout history this has been a problem. But we're dealing with something a little bit different. Because no one has ever had to address the issue of sexual sin amongst a group of people that had such easy access to it. Never. It's easier to not get addicted to something that's at least somewhat of a challenge to get into your possession. You at least have to do the walk of shame in a gas station to buy a magazine or something, right? Something. But, but, but the internet and technology, man, that's changed it forever. And addiction is oftentimes what it leads to. It becomes an addiction for people. And like any other addiction, it is poison. And in case you're unaware of the problem that it is, here come a few more stats your way. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and MLB combined. It's more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography, and 94% of children will see it by the age of 14. 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 68% of church-going men and more than 50% of pastors view it on a regular basis. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch it. 87% of Christian women have watched it. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24, 76% actively search for pornography. 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. Check this one out. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. You think that classifies as a huge problem again i don't even like talking about it but it, me not talking about it isn't going to make it go away we can stick our head in the sand all we want pretend it's not there while we're here but once we go back out into the real world and once our kids get out there reality sets in and it's something we're all then faced with so we have to address this epidemic that's literally plaguing the human race, God says sexual sin is an arena that God designed for our lives so that we will be different than the rest of the world. We're to be set apart from all of the trash. Man, if you're struggling with that this morning, will you, will you reach out to somebody and get some help and not keep hiding it? Would you get some help? Do you realize that the studies are showing that Pornography is literally rewiring people's brains. It's rewiring their minds. Neurological research has revealed that 
the effect of pornography on the brain is just as potent, if not more, than other addictive chemical substances such as cocaine or heroin. And what makes it worse is, is there's only 1.9 million cocaine users and there are only 2 million heroin users in the U.S., but there are 40 million regular users of online pornography. You see, they aren't thinking about intimacy the same way anymore. And they need more and more outrageous things to stimulate them. I, I find it as no surprise that their minds are being rewired because Romans 1.8 teaches us about those in Romans 1.28 that, that did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Something happened to the mind. You see, God's already taught us that that sin messes with our minds. And what I want to make sure that we understand about every statistic or every scientific discovery I've mentioned this morning is that the Bible already taught us all of this stuff. The stats just show how bad it's gotten, and the science just shows that even the secular world are acknowledging this as a problem. It does things to our mind. But you see, there's hope. And this one isn't on the screen, but Romans 12, 2 teaches us that our minds can be renewed. But this thing is nothing to play with. It was 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 describes it like, like this. It says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Why? Because they war against the soul. There's something extremely serious going on when our behavior is literally at war with our souls. And there are some of you sitting there thinking, well, whew, sweet, I'm off the hook on that one too, man. I don't watch that stuff online. And that's wonderful, and I pray that's the case for every person here. And So you may not be going to the websites to look at it, but, but how are you doing with your eyes as you go through your daily life? How are you doing with that? Some of us wouldn't go down the path of the internet because we know we can get caught there. But how are we doing in everyday life when no one is watching? Earlier I mentioned that adultery was included in, in what we're addressing right now, which is fornication. Adultery is considered fornication. But do you realize this morning that you can commit adultery with your eyes? You can commit adultery with your eyes. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 14, it refers to those who have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 27, it's why he said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You see, what God wants and what God has always been after the whole time is God is after our hearts. That's what he wants. He's not after, well, God, I didn't cheat and I didn't watch porn. Aren't you proud of me? Yes, God is glad that you hadn't done that. Yes, he is. But if your eyes are wandering all around every day, do you know what that means? It may mean that you haven't done the physical act, but you wanted to. And so you did it in your heart. And God says, that's what I'm after. I'm, I'm after your heart. I want your desires to be changed. I want you to want to be sanctified and set apart. Have, have, you, ever seen, have you ever seen Job's approach? Job ups the ante in a major way in Job 31.1. Because he says, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? You see, Job understood that you could commit adultery with your eyes. And so what did he do? He said, I'm, not only am I not going to look, I'm going to stop it at the thought. I'm not even going to think about it. You see, a thought or a look is the first step down the path. Let's not kid ourselves here. 
It's the path that God doesn't want us to be on at all. And that's the start. That's the getting on point. God wants us to, to cut that thing off at the root. Don't even start down the path in any way. This is why 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, it, it says, Flee also youthful lusts. Flee. Get out of there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 says, Flee fornication. We should avoid it, and if necessary, we should literally run away from it. You remember when Joseph did that exact thing? You remember what he did? If you'll remember, what happens in, in the story is, is, is Potiphar. So Potiphar is this Egyptian, he's an officer of Pharaoh. He put Joseph in charge of everything that he had. He's, he's overseeing everything Potiphar had, and God was blessing everything Joseph did. Everything he did prospered. Bible says he's a good-looking guy. I mean, this dude was the man. This dude was a stud. And Potiphar's wife thought so too. And she literally throws herself at him. And in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 11, it records it for us. And it says, and it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business. And there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got him out. She grabs a hold of him to the point where as he's fleeing, his garment is literally still in her hand. He's out of there, though. Run, Forrest, run, buddy. He fled, he fled just like we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 22. Flee youthful lust. He fled so fast he leaves her coat in her hands and he lost his coat, but he kept his character. He lost his coat, but he kept his sanctification and his holiness. And, and, and you see, God did for David exactly Excuse me, God did for, for Joseph exactly what he says he'll do for us. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, Paul says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. There's not a single temptation that has ever or will ever come into our lives that is above what we are capable of saying no to. If temptation comes into our lives and we make the wrong choice, then it was a willful decision on our part and we could have and should have done otherwise. And in Joseph's case, his way was to make out and run. He was to make out like Usain Bolt and Bolt. His, his way out was to flee. And, and you know, in light of the circumstances that, that he was in, where he was literally, he's doing his job and he's faced with this kind of sexual sin. In light of the circumstances, he fled. He, he did the right thing. But you know what a more ideal scenario is? Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 14 teaches us what that is. It says, Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. What should we do? Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it and pass away. The best scenario when possible is to completely avoid it. Don't even pass by it. If you think that there's a situation that you're about to go into that has the potential to put you on the path of the wicked, then you avoid it completely. So that's one of the ways we're to conduct ourselves with our bodies. In order to be found blameless and holy at the coming of the Lord, we're to abstain from fornication. That's God's will for how we conduct ourselves with our bodies. Another way God wants us to conduct ourselves with our bodies is to abstain from the lust of concupiscence. 
Letter B, the lust of concupiscence. We're going to, we're, we're going to skip verse 4 and we're going to come back to it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 5, it says, Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. The, the, the lust of concupiscence, y'all, it's a, it's, a, it's a lust or desire for what is forbidden or for what is out of bounds. It's, it's connected to coveting, and it's all of that, it's all of that sexual sin that nobody wants to talk about anymore. It's all that stuff that we find in Romans 1 and we find in other places. In Romans 1, Paul's talking about uncleanness and he's talking about the lust of concupiscence that the Gentiles had been involved in. And, and I want you to see what Paul lays out for us starting in verse 21. And here's what he says. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Listen, the behavior we're about to see isn't because God didn't make Himself known to them. He made Himself known. Understand that. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was, it was darkened. Skip to verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. What did those look like? For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, they burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Listen, guys, verses 26 and 27, I don't think they can get a whole lot more clear than that. When you start talking about the lust of concupiscence and sins that are forbidden and sins that are way out of bounds, you start talking about sexual sins like the ones that we find in, in verse 26 and 27 and other places in the Bible, which is clearly referencing the sexual sin of homosexuality. I understand it could not be any more socially unacceptable for me to stand up here and say that. I, I get that. But guys, either the Bible is true or it isn't. It's really as, as simple as that. Is it God's word or is it not? The Bible is the foundation for all matters of faith and practice. Otherwise, we're all just making stuff up as we go, aren't we? We don't have the liberty to attempt to change the truth for the culture. But with that said, something else that goes alongside of that that I want to make sure that I mention is not only do we not hate people that are involved in that sexual sin, we love them. <laughs> Disagreeing with someone's lifestyle and their choices has never constituted hate. That is illogical and unfair conclusion. I've got tons of friends with lifestyles and choices that they've made that I very much agree with in a variety of different ways, and I love them. So, so we all love those that are struggling with the sin of homosexuality or gender confusion or whatever that it is. In fact, we love those folks so much that our desire is to tell them about Jesus, the only one that can save them from their sin. 
And then he'll change them from the inside out. Our job isn't to bring someone from gay to straight. Our job is the same as with any other unbeliever. Our job is to bring a sinner to Jesus Christ. And after that, Jesus changes them from the inside like he did all of us in this room. But do you see what happens here in this passage in the life of an individual that continues to stiff arm God? Do you see this in verse 24? Would would you go back to the other slide? Yeah, verse 24 of Romans 1, it says, God also gave them up. Can you go back to that next screen, verse 26? Again, God gave them up, verse 26. Verse 28, God, do you see this? God gave them over. And, And what God is doing here is, is he's removing the restraint and letting them have what their lives are telling him that they want. And look at the progression as it's actually lifted. It it actually progresses. He lets go of, God lets go of body, soul, and spirit. Verse 24 says, God gave them up to dishonor their own bodies. That's the body. Verse 26 says, God gives them up to vile affections. Those affections, passions, and emotions, those are in the soul, y'all. Verse 28 says, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That's the spirit. Ephesians 4 talks about the spirit of our minds. And so again, what we see is as we continue to reject the light that we've been given from God and stiff-arm God... He can start to loosen the restraints on our body, soul, and spirit and give us what our lives are telling him that we want. Listen, y'all, some of the worst judgment that we can get from God is when he gives us what we want. Letting us have our own way is some of the worst judgment we can have from God. In Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 19, it says, Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but they rejected it. God says, you've rejected me, and so I'm just going to give you what you want. He says, I'll give you the fruit of your thoughts. And and this is how it happens as people go down the path that the lust of concupiscence leads them down. And God's trying to teach us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that this is not how believers in Jesus Christ are to conduct themselves in their bodies. It, 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 It isn't His will because we've been set apart. We're something different now. It's why at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 5. It's why at the end it says, even as the Gentiles which know not God. In other words, this is how they behave out there. But for those of us who believe we're to behave different than the rest of the world, especially in this arena of sexual sin and how we behave with our bodies, the world should see a difference in us. So God's teaching us, if if we're to be found holy and blameless at the coming of the Lord, there's a particular way that we're to conduct ourselves with our bodies, and we're to abstain from fornication and abstain from the lust of concupiscence. But how are we to behave? How are we to possess our vessel? And that's what I want us to see next. Number two, how to possess our vessel. How to possess our vessel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. You see, y'all, we're vessels. Do you realize that? A vessel is like a, it's like a container or it's like a, a jug. And, and a potter makes vessels out of clay. And we humans are quite literally made out of clay. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it teaches us we were made of the dust of the ground. 
One chapter over in chapter 3 and verse 19, it says that we were taken from the dust of the ground, and that's exactly where we're going to return one day, and we all know that to be true. You see, we're God's vessels, and as his vessels, we've been set apart for a particular use and a particular purpose. That's why verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 4 says we're to possess our vessels in sanctification. Letter A, in sanctification. And, and this, is, of course, is a lot of what we've already been talking about, so we're not going to hang here too long. This is actually the second time the word has come up in two verses. You see, as God's vessels... He wants us to be set apart for his use, and he wants us to be clean vessels, holy and pure. If you picked up a vessel or a container that was unclean, would you use that vessel for your purposes, or or would you find another one to use? God's will is that we be set apart and clean and pure and sanctified. In, in this thing of sanctification, it goes hand in hand with, with something else from this verse I want us to see, which is that God's will is that we'd be a vessel unto honor. Let her be honor. He wants us to be a vessel unto honor. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, again, it says to possess our vessel in sanctification and honor. They, we, we, it should be possessed with honor. It should be possessed with high esteem. It should be possessed as something precious. It should be possessed as something of great price. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20, it gives us some insight as to one of the reasons why this is so important to God. It says, but, but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified. Those are the exact same two things we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians 4.4. Honor and sanctification. And look at what those things are connected to. And meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. You see, God's teaching us that, that vessels of honor... And sanctification, that means you've purged yourself from uncleanness and they are meat for the master's use. They are profitable for the master's use. They're easily used and they're prepared unto every good work. If we're prepared unto every good work, we're ready to go to be used to accomplish God's purposes in our lives. When we've purged ourselves from sinful lusts such as fornication and the lust of concupiscence, we find ourselves in position for God to use us. You see, it's not just a matter of keeping us from the bad. It's about preparing us to be used for the good. Now, now as we've been studying the, these three verses this morning, I, you know, what we've been seeing is, is that in order to be found blameless and holy at the Lord's coming, it's, it's God's will that we abstain from fornication and that we abstain from the lust of concupiscence and that we instead, we possess our vessels in sanctification and honor. And we've looked at some of the reasons why that's so important this morning. But I think 1 Corinthians chapter 6 really, really sums it up, what the issue with sinning with our bodies it really boils down to and why it's such a big deal. This passage fits like a glove with everything we've been talking about this morning. Would you look at it with me? Meats for the belly and belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is what we've been talking about all morning, about our bodies set apart from fornication, not as a means to an end, but being set apart from fornication unto the Lord. Verse 14, and God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and 
and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. He explains what that means in the next verse. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Genesis 2.24 refers to a man and a woman becoming one flesh through the intimacy of the marriage relationship. Verse 17, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, this is why this sexual sin is such a big deal. Because the day we got saved, the Holy Spirit took up residence on the inside of us and according to verse 17, we've been joined to the Lord in one spirit. And now that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, the purpose of our bodies or the purpose of our, our vessels that the Holy Spirit has filled is for the Lord to use them. According to this passage, our bodies are for the Lord, the temple of the Holy Ghost, and members of Christ. <laughs> So as the temple of God, the place where God dwells, how can we be joined to another in fornication and sexual sin? How could we do that to the temple of God? And I know a lot of us have heard our whole lives, hey, all sin's the same before God. You know that. All sin's the same before God. Well, I think that one might need a little clarification. All sin is the same in the sense that any of it no matter how big and no matter how small, will send you to hell if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. In that sense, it's all the same, but in God's eyes, there are sins that are more heinous in His sight than others. There are sins that have a steeper penalty in this life and in the next. And in this passage... What God does is, is he takes the sexual sin and he puts it in a category all of its own. <laughs> he says every other sin is outside of the body. But this one over here, this one's against your own body. It's a physical act in which you sin against your own body. In that body, it's, it's a body that's been purchased. You realize that. Verse 20 says, we've been bought with a price. Do you remember how steep that price was? That price was the most precious commodity that there's ever been. That price was the blood of the lamb. The price was the blood of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we must abstain from fornication, from the lust of concupiscence, and possess our vessels in sanctification and honor. And by doing that, 1 Thessalonians teaches us that's how we can be found blameless and holy at the coming of the Lord. This is the will of God for our lives. Did you notice that he says that? And I've been saying that throughout this message at the beginning of verse 3 of chapter 4. For this is the will of God. That's the will of God for our lives. You know, as believers, we use that line a lot. Well, brother, I'm just looking for the will of God in my life. Circumstances come around, whatever's happening in our lives, right? We don't know what to do. There's a big decision to be made. I just want the will of God for my life. That's all I want. And that's great. And I do think a lot of times we mean that. But sometimes God's will in those instances can be really challenging to decipher what it is. But you know how extremely clear this one is? That the will of God for all of our lives is that we will abstain from fornication and lust and possess our vessels in sanctification and honor. And if we're not doing that and we say that we want God's will for our lives, then we really don't want God's will for our lives, do we? 
If we meant that, then we'd do the will that we already know is clearly laid out for us in the Bible. You see, if we don't do His will, then we've already proven that we don't actually want His will to be done. We just want Him to do what we want Him to do. I'm seeking God's will for my life while I'm involving myself in sexual sin. You don't want God's will. You want your own will. You just want God to make sure that everything is going great in your life. We don't want to do what God wants us to do, but we expect Him to do what we want Him to do. We do as we please. God do as I say. That's not how this thing works, y'all. If we want God's will for our lives in areas where we don't know what we should do, maybe we should start doing the will of God for our lives in the areas where we know what we should do. Maybe then we'd have clearer direction in the areas where we don't know what we should do. Listen, this has been, this has been, a, this has been a heavy message, one in which I, if I had to preach something like this every week, I think I'd probably get out of the ministry, to be completely honest with you. <laughs> really, like it was just uh, weighing me down. It, it, and, and, I, and I get it, though. If, if somebody's having struggles in the areas that I've been talking about this morning, it's not very easy to admit it. It's a lot easier to say, yeah, brother, I need to work on my temper. I really need to be a better witness out there. Yeah, 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 I do. Man, I sure do, brother. Yeah, I do. It's a lot harder to say, man, I'm dealing with some sexual sin in my life. And I need to control my eyes, and I need to control where I'm going on the computer. And that's a, that's a lot harder to admit. And you don't have to admit that to me. But will you admit that to God this morning? Will you, will you, will you own that and disown that this morning? I pray that that's what we'll do. Father, I... I, I have an obligation to your word. And as we go verse by verse through your word, I don't really get a choice as to what comes next. And here we are. And so we're covering topics, God, that are heavy and that they're, they're weighty. But man, are they relevant. And we've got to get a grip on this thing, God. These is, this is one of the primary areas where you have called us that believers in Jesus Christ, you've called us to be different, especially in these areas. Ah, I pray, God, that for anybody that's under conviction this morning, would this be the day where you just don't, you don't do what you've always done and you, you confess it and then go right back to it tomorrow? Would it be the day that you actually confess it and you repent and you turn from it, God? You are worthy. And I pray, God, that our lives would reflect that. In your name we pray, amen.